taking a break from our regular series that we've been going through right now, and I want to preach to you a special message here, considering our nation and what's going to happen this week. If you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Second Kings. That's in your Old Testament, Second Kings and chapter 19. I want to preach to you today a message called The Prayer That Saved a Nation. Now, there have been many dark chapters in the American story where it seemed as if the nation would not survive. Perhaps no moment was more dire than what Abraham Lincoln faced in the summer of 1863 as the nation was embroiled in a bloody civil war. It was during these days that Lincoln's faith was tested like never before and his prayer life deepened. In fact, he said of that crucible, quote, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. The turning point of the war happened at the Battle of Gettysburg, which was fought between July 1st through the 3rd in 1863. And that battle is the stuff of legends. Whether you talk of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the 20th Regiment holding Little Round Top, or you speak of Pickett's doomed charge on the last day, when the cannon smoke finally settled, the Union Army had halted the progress of General Robert E. Lee and the Confederates, but there were record casualties from both sides, totaling over 51,000. But what many don't know is that behind the scenes, the president was praying. In fact, the day after Gettysburg, Lincoln told his military staff this. He said, quote, I had no fears of Gettysburg. People may laugh it off if it got out, but in the very pinch of the military campaign, I went to my room and got down on my knees and prayed to Almighty God for victory. I told him that this was his country and the, this was his war, and we couldn't stand another loss. Thus, after wrestling with the Almighty in prayer, I don't know how it was, but somehow or another, a sweet comfort crept into my soul that God had taken the whole business into His hands. And don't you wish we had a president who would pray like that? Today, we are in one of those dark chapters in our nation's history. We may not be fighting with bullets and bombs to preserve our union, but there is a spiritual battle nonetheless for the soul of our nation. And we know that in a few days, Americans will go back to the polls in a midterm elections. Many of you have already been. You've already cast your ballot. And there are many citizens today and on Tuesday who will be looking for a change. Of course, we know, beloved, that one election cannot fix our broken nation. We can either be one nation under God or we can be one nation gone under. But our problems today are so big that what we really need is a heaven-sent miracle. Lincoln, as we studied, had found the strength to lead our nation through a crisis and so did a man named Hezekiah who led his people 11 centuries earlier when the nation of Judah faced certain annihilation. And in today's message, we're going to revisit this familiar Old Testament story. It's an amazing story 
from the life of King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 19. And I believe that there are many applications that we can apply as we think biblically about the peril of our nation and the preservation thereof. I want you to see four lessons today out of this prayer that saved the nation. Number one is this. I want you to see the nation's desperate peril. The nation's desperate peril. I told you to turn to chapter 19, but we're actually going to back up and get a head start. Look into chapter 18 and drop down to verse 28 and read with me. The Word of God says this, Then Rob Shekah stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look at verse 33. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Go to verse 35. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. And then chapter 19 in verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Let's set the context as we look at number one, the nation's desperate peril. The year is 701 B.C. The name Assyria would strike terror in the hearts of those in the ancient Middle East. Shennacherib was the king of Assyria at this time. And he ruled over a territory that stretched across Egypt, up the Mediterranean coast, and as far over as Iran, modern-day Iran. There's the map. It shows you the expanse of the Assyrian Empire at this time. Twenty years earlier, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, Judah's neighbor. And now, Assyria had defeated Israel easily and thousands of the Israelites were marched off into captivity to spend the rest of their days in slavery. Shennacherib has now moved his army toward the direction of Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And historians tell us that the Assyrian army mustered 250,000 troops while Israel's army was less than 2,000 at this time. The Assyrian king, as we read, had just sent his chief vizier and cupbearer, a title which was given to him called Rab Shekah, which we read of in chapter 18. And he has announced the terms of surrender to Hezekiah and the kingdom. He's trying to talk them in to giving up before the battle ever happened. So picture this, my friend. Jerusalem is surrounded and outnumbered. And with each passing day that Shennacherib has a stranglehold, gets tighter on the nation of Judah, and provisions are running out. And make no mistake, the Assyrian king made certainty to spit in God's eye as he made those threats. You heard him say there as he taunted Israel, none of the other nations were able to stand up 
to the might of Shennacherib and this army? What makes you think that your puny little God will save you now? And so Hezekiah, the king of Judah, is now faced with a terrible dilemma. Surrender or starve. As God's people today, we survey our landscape. There is an overwhelming force of evil that has crept into our country and feels as if the darkness is growing today just as it was in Hezekiah's day. It's easy today to feel like Lincoln on the eve of Gettysburg or like Hezekiah here under an Assyrian siege. It feels as if there's little hope. Where is God? Where is God's man and and God's people? Just look at some of the headlines. This year, Americans have suffered a record 9% inflation rate, the worst in 40 years. You feel it every time you go to the pump or every time you buy groceries. We have a porous southern border that has created an illegal immigration crisis. And in just one year, the U.S. Border Patrol has reported 5 million illegals who have come into our nation and 2.4 million arrests. That's the most in history. We are being invaded just by a different way. Another concern among Americans' minds is the skyrocketing crime rates that have exploded in the wake of the defund the police marches. In fact, Fox News reported that little Asheville made national headlines as it has experienced a 31% hike in violent crime in the past five years, and it is in the top 10% of the most violent cities in America. That's right in our backyard, friend. There's an ongoing drug overdose crisis that takes over 100,000 lives a year. And then listen to this. In just July 2022, the DEA seized enough fentanyl coming across our southern border, they say, to kill every single American. And then we have a woke agenda that is infiltrating schools and universities all over our country. In fact, five states today, California, Colorado, Illinois, New Jersey, and Oregon, and some counties in Maryland and Virginia have laws that mandate LBGT inclusive curriculum to be taught in the public schools. K through 12. As you survey what we're up against... The combined weight of these mounting problems reminds me of what the psalmist cried out in chapter 11 and verse 1. He said, if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? Psalm 11, let me correct myself in verse 3. Hezekiah received the news of what was impending and he didn't know what to do except to Don the clothes of mourning, rip his garments, which was a show of deep grief, and go to the house of the Lord. And you know, as I think about that, crisis has a way of humbling us because sometimes it's the only thing that will get our attention. It takes a 9-11 to remind us that we're not as untouchable as we think we are. It takes a recession to prove to us the foolishness of putting our hope and security in money. It takes a pandemic to remind us that we're really not in control of things like we think we are. 
It takes a cancel culture to show us that the freedoms we once took for granted can be taken from us if we don't fight for them. And with all the evil that is run amok in our country right now, I'm wondering, has God got your attention yet? What does God have to do to get us to the point of Hezekiah where he rent his garments, felt the oppressive nature of what was weighing upon him, and go to the house of the Lord? I'm wondering if God has your attention now. Because, friend, nothing's going to change in our country, in our churches, in our lives until we get to the place where Hezekiah was that is broken, dependent, and humbled before the Lord. We want to see God in the White House and in the schoolhouse and in the courthouse, but let me remind you, it begins in God's house. And the reason we don't have revival in our churches today is because we've decided we can live without it. We don't want it. Pollsters tell us that record numbers of people are turning out to the polls this year to vote. And that's great. But why then is the prayer room so empty? We'll line up to cast a ballot for a fallen leader... And yet we won't give God five minutes in the prayer room. And we'll wait half a day to vote. Which has more power, prayer or a ballot? Why go to the polls if we're not willing to come to the altar of God and plead for our nation, plead for our families and our lives? You see, we vote God out of power when we decide... We don't need prayer. We don't need revival. We humbly neglect to bow ourselves before God. We cry out all the time, don't we? Oh, this is the worst it's ever been. We really don't believe that because the prayer room is still empty. If we really believed it was as bad as it was, as hopeless as it was, there'd be more crying out for God. Yeah, I'm stepping on toes today. You know why? Hezekiah and the nation was in deep peril. Do we really believe we're in deep peril today? Is our hope in another election cycle? We're running out of election cycles to see things change. Your hope better be in the Lord today. Number one, we see the nation's desperate peril. Then we see number two, the prophet's definite promise. The prophet's definite promise. Jump down to chapter 19 and verse 5 with me. Notice what the word says. And when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Watch this. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword of his own land. See, Hezekiah sent for the prophet on call, which at this time was Isaiah. And he wanted to know, Isaiah, does God have something to say about our current peril? What's the word from God about Judah's fate? 
And you notice here that Isaiah answered back with a definite promise. An ironclad, sure word of God's protection over his people. Now, Isaiah didn't say how God was going to do it, but he assured King Hezekiah, listen, I'll take care of the Assyrians. They will not take your land. My goodness. Just imagine how the weight of the world was lifted from Hezekiah's shoulders when he heard this word from the Lord. Does the word of God do that for you, friend? Do you take comfort and peace in hearing the preaching of the word of God? The weight must have been lifted from Hezekiah's shoulders. The promise of God, listen, allowed him to be calm and confident in the crisis. And the word of God will allow you to be calm and confident in the crisis that we are facing today. Oh, it was bad news coming from one side of the world. But then somebody in the kingdom had another word from heaven. It was the word of God. And I'm telling you today, don't listen to the bad news. Don't get wrapped up in what the scoreboard says. Uh, there's a word from heaven today. It's come by the Holy Spirit from the Father's hand. And friend, it will give you confidence in the midst of the crisis today. I'm thankful today I don't have to rely on CNN. I don't have to rely on Fox News for my hope and for my peace. I've got a sure word of God today spoken down through the ages that's true and never goes out of style. Oh, the promises of God. It's been said that a promise of God is like an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. It's the one thing you can anchor your life to when everything else has fallen apart and the culture's gone sideways and you're wondering why people are acting a fool and why nobody seems to have common sense in a place of leadership anymore. I'm thankful that there's a prophet and a word of God. As Charles Spurgeon wrote this, he said, The promises of God are longer than life, broader than sin, deeper than the grave, and higher than the heavens. Hezekiah didn't give up and didn't give in to the despair, even though, oh, the news was terrible. And friend, neither should you as one of God's children today. Because I, may I remind you, as I stand on the Word of God, that nations rise and fall that presidents come and go, that yes, elections may be stolen or rigged, but one thing that will never fail is to be a ever-present help in a time of need is this unchangeable and unimpeachable Word of God. You see, the Word of God is going to last after our White House and Constitution and Supreme Court. This Word tells me in Isaiah 40 and verse 8 that the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. And I don't care whatever happens on November 8th. Let me remind you that on November 9th, I'm still going to get up. I'm going to open my precious word of God. I'm going to have the promises of God renew my mind and raise me up. I'll be like a wind under an eagle's wings. 
I'll be reminded that God's got a people and God's got a plan and God's got a promise for me. No matter what happens on November the 9th, I'll open the Word of God and it'll still be true. It'll still be God's daily bread for my soul. It'll still be a lamp unto my feet. Somebody help me today and a light unto my path. This Word of God will still be a double-edged sword, Brother Stan, that will divide us under the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. Oh, I'll open that Bible up no matter who's president or who's in Congress or how bad the nation's gotten. I'm going to be able to open it up and I'll be able to say like David, it's more precious to me than gold refined seven times in the fire. It'll still be an unbreakable anvil that the haters of the world and the skeptics and the atheists of the world will take and try and smash it. Oh, but they will never break the anvil of the Word of God. You see, why, why am I preaching this? Because some Christians listen too much to the talking heads. They spend too much time watching conspiracy theory videos on YouTube and listening to the predictions of so-called quote-unquote experts than they do opening up and hearing from the Word of God. And that's why today the church is so consumed with worry and fret and despair. That's why you look at many churches today and you can't tell any difference between the church and the world. I'm thankful, and I know Hezekiah was thankful in his day that he had a word from God. Isaiah, what does, what does God say about our situation? Not what the media says or what Hollywood says or what social media puts out there. What does God say? Because God says it and that settles it and I believe it. I love that story that Brother Max Licato tells in one of his books about a, a young man who was living beside an elderly retired music teacher. And this music teacher was getting toward the end of his life and he was confined to a wheelchair. And every day this young man would check on his elderly neighbor and they'd go through a little ritual. Young man would open the old man's door and shout to make sure he was okay. And then he would ask him, what's the good news today? The old music teacher would take out a tuning fork from his pocket. Ding! He'd tap it on the side of his wheelchair and he'd say, this is middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It'll be middle C tomorrow. It'll be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hallway is out of tune. But my friend, ding, this is middle C. And friend, I'm telling you, I've got a middle C right here. Presidents come and go. Elections don't go the way we want them. Uh, things happen that we can't foresee and don't ex be able to explain. But I can always open this up. And it's constant. It's true. It doesn't change. It doesn't need to be revised. It only needs to be reread and re-preached from the heights of heaven. It's my middle C. What's your hope in today, church? What are you anchoring your life to? 
What are you basing your hope on today? Hopefully it's not the outcome of an election. Hopefully it's not in a political party. Not in the strength of our economy. Not in a man-made philosophy. But in the word of God. David said some trust in horses and others in chariots. But I will trust in the name of the Lord my God. Help me preach this today, church. We see number one, we notice the nation's desperate peril. Then we notice number two, the prophet's definite promise. Then I want you to see as we talk about this prayer that saved a nation, the king's dynamic prayer. The king's dynamic prayer. Go to verse 14 of chapter 19 and we'll read together. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O God. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Shennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please from his hand that the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. The king's dynamic prayer. So, Hezekiah has heard from the prophet. And now he makes a beeline into the temple. And then he proceeds as he lays before the altar of the Lord. This terms of surrender. He proceeds to offer one of the most moving and powerful prayers in the Bible. I want you to notice some of the things in this prayer. First off, see that he prayed specifically. He prayed specifically in verse 14 and following. Notice what the Bible says there. It says that he received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. He brought Shennacherib's terms of surrender and laid it out on the altar. And I can guarantee you that the urgency of the situation provided a lot of clarity for how he ought to pray. In other words, as Hezekiah laid that out before the Lord. Here's what he said. He said, Lord, here's what we're up against today. Here's what this pagan king has said about you. And here's exactly, Lord, what we need. Let me ask you, friend, do you pray like that? Do you take all your hopes, your dreams, your bills, your diseases, your burdens, your sins, and do you lay them out before the Lord like the way Hezekiah did with those terms of surrender? I mean, it got down to the brass tacks. He got specific. He got detailed. You know, you can take your requests, your problems, and your peril before the Lord. You can lay before Him Lord, here's my bank statement. Here's what I'm looking at this month. There's too much month and not enough money. You can take your prognosis and lay it before the Lord and say, Lord, here's what the doctors say. Here's what the scan says. But what do you say? 
You can lay your child, your prodigal child before the altar of the Lord and say, God, I don't know how to reach him anymore. Only you can reach out and touch their wayward heart. You ever in a time of discouragement and doubt, lay it before the Lord and say, God, this is what the devil has told me is right about you. God, this is what the enemy is saying in my mind. But Lord, what do you say? Should I give up? Oh God, you can be so specific with him. Lord, my marriage is on the shambles. I don't know how we'll make it. God, if there's any, any hope, and you lay your marriage before God. God, here's my dead church where there's no fire and no joy and nobody getting saved and baptized. God, is our church on life support? Is this the end? Or what do you say? Mark Batterson said this. He said, many Christians don't know when God answers a prayer because they're praying very general, vague prayers. In other words, oh God, bless all the missionaries around the world. How do you know if that gets answered? We should pray for missions. We need to be specific. He continues, he said, we don't know if the answers were the result of genuine coincidence or God's providence. The more specific your prayers are, the more glory God receives. I want to ask God for something so big and so detailed that He's the only one who can meet it so that when it happens, it's got His fingerprints all over it and there's only one outcome and He has to get glory. He says he prayed confidently as well. Specifically and confidently. Did you notice how much praise and worship was in Hezekiah's prayer? I mean, just look at this. He calls him the one who dwelled between the cherubim. That's God's holiness. You've made heaven and earth. That's God is the creator. God is sovereign. All the kingdoms of the earth that they may know that you are the Lord God alone. That's a, a testament to God's glory. This prayer is packed full of praise because, listen, he knew who he was praying to. Some of us pray weak prayers because we don't know God. Some of us don't pray because we never really tested God. If you don't spend time with somebody, how are you going to know who they are? You've got to spend time in God's presence, in God's Word, to know who He is so that when you go to the prayer room, as Hebrews 4.16 says, you can come boldly to the throne of grace because you know the Heavenly Father on whom you are calling upon and you're not strangers. I hope some of you take prayer more seriously after listening to this. He prayed confidently. Corey Ten Boom said this, The wonderful thing about praying is that you leave a world of not being able to do something and enter God's realm where everything is possible. You ask me why I pray? Because I'm a weakling. Because I need it. Because God is my crutch. Because I can't make it one day on my own. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You think I could preach if I didn't pray? You think I could lead somebody to the Lord if I didn't pray? You think I'd have anything to offer on Sunday morning if I went out and played golf instead of went and to the secret chamber and found the face of God? What makes us think we're going to have something to offer our nation 
and our state and our church if we don't get on our face before God. I know this is not popular preaching today. But God help me to be true to your word. He prayed confidently. He prayed specifically. But then I love this. Notice he prayed actively. When your back's up against the wall, you're going to pray different. Notice this. Hezekiah didn't just pray and then twiddle his thumbs. Because the Bible says that after he left the temple, he sprung into action. When Hezekiah realized that his capital city was about to be surrounded by the greatest military force on the earth, he made preparations because he knew the first thing that Shennacherib's army was coming for was the town water supply. Listen to what the Bible says, 2 Chronicles 32. It's up on the screen. And then Hezekiah saw that Shennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem. He planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. And Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all of his works. What's the Bible telling us? The Bible's telling us that Hezekiah prayed, asked God to do what only he could do. Then he clothed himself, put on his work boots, got his engineers and his construction guys together and says, Guys, the enemy's coming. We've left it in the hands of God, but there's still work for us to do down here. Let's go down here to the Gihon Spring, which was the source of water for the city of Jerusalem, and let's build a tunnel secretly underground that will channel the water from the spring to the inside of our city so that the Assyrians can't get to it. And if you study the history of this, the workers doubled the speed of the project because one group started on one end inside the city and one group started on the outside of the city at the source of the spring and they dug at the same time and they met in the middle. And they did it without computers. And the archaeologists say, this has been discovered. This was discovered in 1838 by the archaeologist Edward Robinson. It was 1,750 feet long, and it's considered one of the greatest works of water engineering in antiquity. And the archaeologists say they were only off by six inches. We couldn't do that today with Elon Musk and all of our technology. Not if we had to go back and rely just on brain power alone. But here's the application. Hezekiah prayed as if everything depended on God and worked as if everything depended upon Him. We have to pray and ask God to do what only He can do. Only God can convict hearts. Only God can bring miracles. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can turn back a wayward nation. Only God can do what God can do. But we also have something we've been called to do. We dare not just pray and twiddle our thumbs and say, well, I did my part, or go and put a a ballot in a box and say, I did my part. No, there's more for us to do as Americans, as Christians, as Bible believers, as those who walk with Jesus. We can vote. We can also share the gospel in our spheres of influence. 
meetings. We can let our voice be heard at the school board meetings and at the county meetings. We can coach. We can get involved in the lives of young people and help bring hope into their lives. These young people today are in such despair, such depression, such darkness. And some of you have the light. You have the answer within you if you just take a young person and love them like Jesus. Oh, friend, there's much that we can do. We can be the hands and feet of Jesus and we can pray like everything depends upon God and then act and move as if we are it. Outside of you and me, there is no plan B. And you know what's more powerful than a ballot in a box? A spirit-filled, Bible-believing, church-going, devil-hating, gospel-preaching Christian That's what our culture needs. More than a historic turnout at the election booth. We need Christians to say, I'm going to be the salt and light in this world because it depends upon me to do my part to reach the lost. If the devil's going to win, I'm going to make it really hard for him to do it. Because I'm going to dig in my heels and I'm going to preach hard and I'm going to give it all for Jesus. I got kids God only knows what kind of country they're going to live in if I sit and soak and sour and slumber what will your grandkids ask you one day daddy, granddaddy, grandmama where were you when the country fell apart what were you doing when we descended into socialism granddaddy what were you doing When they closed the church down. Think about it. Hezekiah said, I've prayed, I've left as much as I can in the hands of God. But God so helped me, they're not taking my country. They're not taking my city. I'm doing everything I can for my people to live. That's what we need today in this country. Christians who stand up and stand on the Word of God and get backbone and say, I don't care if you cancel me. I don't care if you label me a hater or a bigot or a homophobe. I know who I am. I know who God says I am. And show them the love of Jesus and say, I will not be ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they don't know the God that you and I know. They'll make deductions about the God we serve by the way we live our lives. Number four, the Lord's delivering power. Oh, friend, the Lord's delivering power. Notice what verse 32 says. Chapter 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there. Or come before it with a shield or cast a siege mound against it. By the way he came, is by the way he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Verse 35, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people rose early in the morning, behold, there were dead bodies all around. Shennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nikrosh, his god, 
Don't even ask me to pronounce their names. His son struck him down by the swords and escaped into the land of Ararat. And his son reigned in his place. God fought the battle for Hezekiah. God fought the battle for Judah. He dispatched one warrior angel to take out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers without a shot ever being fired. I've never seen a precious moment angel that looked like this. Amen? This wasn't one of those cute, pudgy little Valentine cherubs. This was a mighty, flaming angel of God. Amen? And what's so amazing about this miracle is that secular historians don't know how to explain it to this day. Because here's the rest of the story. Archaeologists uncovered Shennacherib's palace in Nineveh. And when they went into Nineveh, they found a wall where Shennacherib, the king of Assyria, had inscribed all of his victories. It was his bragging wall. They took it down. It's called the Taylor Prism. You can go to a museum today and see it. On this artifact, Shennacherib lists all the cities he conquered, all the armies he marched against, and all the details of how he beat them. And then in the last entry, it comes to Jerusalem... And all it says was, I had Hezekiah trapped like a bird in a cage. But it doesn't record the outcome. You know why? Because the Almighty God stepped in and changed the direction of a nation and the destiny of a king. And in the book called What If by military historian William McNeil, he says, quote, this is the most important battle that never happened. He says, had Shennacherib been victorious, Judah would have been destroyed, which means there would have been no kingdom for Jesus to be born into, therefore no church, and history would have been radically different, and you and I wouldn't be sitting here today. And it all started with one man and one prayer. And what's the most amazing about it all is that God saved all His people while Judah was sleeping. They were sawing logs. Friend, God can get more done while we're asleep than we can in 10,000 lifetimes. What a reminder to us today that salvation is of the Lord. And what a picture of the gospel. You see, Judah was saved by faith alone when God fought a battle against an overwhelming enemy. What does that sound like? That's a picture of Christ. 2,000 years ago, Christ fought our battle against Satan and against death and against sin and against hell. By His death and by His resurrection, He defeated our worst foe. And the way that Hezekiah was saved is the way that you and I are saved today by faith. By faith. Hezekiah, listen to me, Hezekiah laid out the enemy's letter before the Lord. You know what it really was? It was a death sentence. Here is what I'm going to do to you. Here's what you've got coming. Oh, friend, I'm so thankful that I can go to an altar of God and I can lay before Him my death sentence that was inscribed by the finger of my enemy and say, Lord, my sins are many. This is what I deserve. This is the death that's coming to me. But as you lay that before the altar, 
Hezekiah got grace and mercy and you can bring your death sentence of sin and your sordid past and your brokenness and you can lay it before the Lord and say, God, this is what I'm up against. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. My heart is like that, Lord. Can you save me? And what you'll find is that God will reach down and save you and change you and transform you. And then there's more. While Judah slept, the Bible says that God sent one angel to come and fight that battle. And when they rose up that morning as the sun was coming over the horizon, they saw the salvation of the Lord. Oh, friend, I remember a story. It's the best story, the greatest story ever told. Where on Friday, the King of Glory was killed on a cross and there was no hope and it seemed like there was no answers and the disciples were scared and scattered and skeptical and they didn't know what was coming next. Oh, but then early on a Sunday morning before the sun had come up, while it was still dark, God sent an angel. God said, I want you to go out and dispatch the Romans and roll away that stone so that when the morning sun comes, they will be able to see the tomb is empty. My son is risen and there's deliverance in the name of the Lord. That's what God did in His day. That's what He does in our day. He can take a defeat, Brother Clifford, and He can turn it into a deliverance. So don't tell me what the news says. Don't tell me what social media says or what the experts say. What does God say? It ain't over till God says it's over. And you say, Derek, it's dark. Yeah, it's dark. You say, Derek, our problems are deep. Yeah, they're real deep. Oh, but they don't know our God the way that I know my God. The God that I've seen heal sick bodies and the God that I've seen reach down and pull sinners out of a self-destructive pit. And the God that I've seen turn a little podunk church into a thriving place where there's a Spirit of God and God is moving. Tell me there's no God in heaven. My God is able. 